Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 102, Shinzen Young, the Hybrid Teacher. Shinzen Young joins us to discuss his unique and varied background as a practitioner, his realization about the unification of Eastern and Western technologies, and his actual attempt at bringing together the best of these two worlds into his teaching. This is part one of a three-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. I'm very excited to be joined today by a fellow named Shinzen Young. I'm going to have him talk a little bit about his background in a, in a minute. So all I'll say really is that he is a mindfulness instructor and that he also is a person who's been impacted by some of the best of both the Eastern and Western worlds. And from what he was saying when we spoke earlier before the show, he's really been influenced by some of the best of the West, which he considers mathematics and the scientific tradition. And he's also been really influenced by the contemplative technologies of the East. So thank you again, Shenzhen, for taking the time to join us. Sure. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and also about this interesting East and West combo. Well, I was born in Los Angeles in 1944, so I'm pretty old. And when I was about 14 years old, my best friend in what in those days was called junior high, but now would be called middle school, was third-generation Japanese-American. And uh, he used to take me with his family to see uh, Japanese samurai movies. Mm -hmm. And that instilled a kind of fascination with Asian culture in my young and impressionable mind. Now, this, of course, is... We're talking about the 1950s here. And this was a time before interest in Asia was a cool thing. Mm -hmm. It was very weird and esoteric and geeky <laughs> to be in nerdy, actually, I guess would be the term, to be involved as a teenager in those kinds of interests. But it just grabbed me. And I discovered that there was a an alternate school system for Japanese-American kids that met in the afternoons and on um, Saturdays where they were taught Japanese language and Japanese culture, so I started to go. So the upshot was, uh, by the time I graduated from Venice High, I had also graduated from Sautel Japanese Language Institute, mm. and I'd grown up bilingual and bicultural mm. in Los Angeles. And so I went to UCLA as an Asian language major. They sent me to Japan, which was, of course, terrific because I could already speak, read, and write the language as a foreigner. I encountered Buddhist monks. They seemed to have a secret that they would happily share with you but would never impose upon you. And that left an impression on me. So when I uh, returned to the United States and graduated from UCLA, and was looking for a graduate school, uh, I decided to go to the University of Wisconsin to do a PhD program in Buddhist studies because they had a strong emphasis on Asian languages and 
I was always good at Asian languages. In addition to the Japanese, I managed to pick up Chinese and Sanskrit along the way, uh, etc. So I thought, oh, I'll go for Buddhist studies. It will keep me in Asian culture, and I can use my language skills and get a degree. So they, I completed my coursework. They sent me back to uh, Japan, and the idea was that I was supposed to spend a year there and research a school of Japanese Buddhism that had not been looked into very much by Westerners and write a PhD thesis about that school. The school is Shingon, which is Japanese Vajrayana. Mm -hmm. It's a practice related to the Tibetan practices, not uh, in the sense that it comes from Tibet, but in the sense that both the Tibetan Vajrayana practices and Shingon go back to a common Indic ancestor. Mm. So that was going to be my specialty. But when I got there, they wouldn't teach me anything because essentially they said, well, this isn't just for your intellectual curiosity. This is a, a practice. And if you want to practice it as a personal transformation path, we'll teach you. But we won't teach you anything uh, just for your own intellectual curiosity. So they sort of turned my motivations around, and I ended up staying for three years at Mount Koya, which is the uh, headquarters for that. And also during that period of time, spent some time in Zen Temple, Zen Monastery in Kyoto. So I got the Japanese Vajrayana, which sort of represents the late end of Buddhist history as far as India goes. And then I got Zen, which is a hybrid of Mahayana and sort of Chinese culture and Chinese spirituality, so which, in a sense, in terms of its Indic origins, goes back to a period earlier than, um, than Vajrayana. Right. So then um, I had had those two influences on me, and I had lost interest in the academic study of Buddhism. I was interested in the practice of meditation. Right. Um, and I thought, well, I will, uh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just devote my life to practice. So I took a leave of absence from the University of Wisconsin, never completed my PhD. I have an all but dissertation degree from them. Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing that had happened uh, during my stay in Japan is I met up with a Roman Catholic priest named Father William Johnston. He's written a number of books, but he's a Jesuit and has done a lot to introduce Buddhist techniques of meditation into the Catholic world and therefore into the Christian world. But we became very good friends, and that expanded my intellectual horizons because I came to realize that what I was experiencing in Buddhist practice was part of a much larger subset of world experience, mm. which was the world contemplative or meditative or, if you wish, mystical tradition. And I realized that, oh my God, the same states that you go through when you do Buddhist meditation are reported by St. Teresa of Avila in 16th century Spain. They're, they're in 
certain parts of the Jewish Kabbalah, they're in Sufi masters like Jalaluddin Rumi and so forth, and it's like suddenly I saw my Buddhist practice within a much larger framework. It was sort of like I got a periodic table of the elements, you know how exciting it is when you finally see, oh my God, Mm -hmm. it all sort of falls into place. You know, these things are related to each other, and there's this larger picture. So due to that interaction with Father Johnston, I I came to um, see my Vajrayana and Zen practice mounted within Buddhism, but then see Buddhism mounted within world mysticism. Mm. That gave me a very broad perspective and also gave me a basis for feeling a connection to things like Christianity, which, having grown up Jewish, I had no connection to, and also a connection to the fact that, oh my God, although it's not much known in practice, you can find within Judaism descriptions of the states and experiences that happen as a result of Buddhist practice. And it's not due to cultural diffusion or influences, it's due to independent discovery, because there's something universal about the path to enlightenment. Mm. Cultures and philosophical formulations and techniques vary, Mm -hmm. but you can see that there's a a common undercurrent that cuts across all of that. Well, that was very exciting, and I credit uh, Father Johnston for that. And then just before I left Japan, he came up to me, and he was all excited, and he showed me this article. Now, being a Jesuit, He was actually a professor at Sophia University, which is a Catholic university in Tokyo. And as an intellectual, a Jesuit, he was excited about this article because what the article was about was the study of brainwaves of meditators Mm. that was being done in Japan and actually had been begun by the Japanese in one of the Buddhist universities before World War II. Komazawa University, they were already looking into some of the central and peripheral physiological changes that take place as the result of Zen practice. And in specific, he showed me an article that had actually been done at Tokyo University, which has become a classic article. It appears in Charles Tart's book, Altered States of Consciousness, Mm -hmm. where they showed that Zen meditators never acclimatize to a new click stimulus that's introduced, which would seem to be an objective physiological confirmation of the subjective claim of the meditators that each moment is completely fresh and new. They showed a physiological correlate of that in the non-extinction of something called an orienting response. Mm which extinguishes in every normal human, but not in these meditators. In other words, when something isn't new anymore to you, you don't have this orienting response, but the Zen meditators always had it. So he thought, wow, how elegant is this? We're using science to validate the spiritual path, and he thought that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And this was just before I left Japan. I read that article, and it got me thinking. It's like, okay, my path started with a teenage fascination with Asian culture. I'm now a professional meditator. This is what I'm going to do for my life. 
it seems to me that this is the best that Asia has to offer. You know, there's art and there's philosophy and there's cuisine and there's lots of cool things. But when you get down to it, what has Asia done better than anyone else in the world? It is the technology of internal psycho-spiritual exploration through meditation. That's like a pinnacle of human achievement. Once you really appreciate how systematic and, in a sense, proto-scientific Asian meditation is in general, and most specifically, early Buddhism, mindfulness. When you realize what an achievement this is, it's like you're standing on this pinnacle that is a high point of human achievement relative to all of humanity, the whole world, all of our species history. And I felt I was standing on that pinnacle, and really, in a sense, Asian culture didn't have any more interest for me. Mm. So I'm looking out, and I say, is there a comparable pinnacle somewhere else? Something that some other group did that is comparable to this in the awesomeness of its depth and power, and I see another peak, and that's the mixture of physical reasoning, mathematical reasoning, logical reasoning, skepticism, and experimentation. Mm -hmm. The West put that all together, plus a group cooperative culture where information must be shared. In other words, the scientific method and what it achieved. I look out and I say, that's comparable. And if I look at all of humanity, I see two peaks of the greatest intellectual achievement and the greatest relevance to the human situation. Mm. The Eastern science technology of achieving well-being independent of conditions and the Western science technology of understanding and manipulating conditions. So there's this sort of like Eastern science of understanding who we are at the psychological and deep spiritual level and achieving a happiness independent of conditions. And then there's this Western science that understands how the natural world works and uh, is able to manipulate conditions to achieve a happiness dependent on conditions, but a, a much more powerful one than anyone ever achieved before. Right. So I'm looking out and I'm saying, okay, an understanding and a technology that allows for an understanding of self and a well-being independent of conditions on one hand. And this other peak, an understanding of the natural world and a technology that allows us to vastly increase our ability to manipulate conditions (laughs) Mm -hmm. and be happy that way. What if these could get together? Right. What if they mated? Is that possible? If the best of the East and the best of the West were to produce a hybrid child of some sort, which we, of course, can't imagine how a hybrid's going to turn out. 
Right. Okay. But there is something called hybrid vitality. The history of science itself shows this over and over again. You'll have two seemingly unrelated subfields that suddenly find a common basis. And that becomes, or then standing on that common basis, a third new development takes place. My favorite example of that is, okay, look at the history of math. Essentially, prior to the 16th century, you've got algebra, which is the study of number and operations, and then you've got geometry, which is the study of space and configurations. And there was some back and forth between them, and sometimes they helped each other, sometimes they sort of hindered each other, if you know much about the history of math. Mm -hmm. I won't go into the details, but there was some back and forth. But then Descartes, Fermat, discovered this very close link between equations and curves in space, which is now called pre-calculus, but was at one time called analytical geometry. That connection, that sort of natural mating of geometry and algebra produced a basis for a new direction, calculus. Right. Leibniz, Newton, they come in, they can graph functions. Now you can talk about integrating under the curve, and you can talk about taking the derivative at a given point, and we're off into differential and integral calculus, and then that gets generalized to a real analysis, complex analysis, vector analysis, functional analysis, topology, and we're off and running in a whole new direction of mathematics. So I ask myself if the power of analysis and topology came about in some sense through the mating of algebra and geometry, Mm -hmm. what kind of power would come out of the best of the West and the best of the East? Right. So I thought, okay, I'm going back to the West. I know I'm going to meditate, and I know time will pass, and I know there's a pretty high probability that uh, with the passage of time, I'll get better and better at meditation. At some point, I'll be a pro. At that point, I'd like to also be at least a really good amateur player of science because I think that these guys should be talking to each other and maybe they will someday and I'd like to be part of that. So that's what I did on my own. I used my meditative skills to train myself in the sciences, uh, self-taught. By the way, I have absolutely no natural ability for quantitative thinking, math. <laughs> I failed all my high school algebra, geometry, just flat out F. The only F I ever got at UCLA was the only science course I ever attempted, <laughs> which was Astronomy 101. And on the second week, the professor wrote, uh, this is Newton's law, F equals MA. Force is proportional to acceleration, and mass being the proportionality constant. And I knew that was algebra, and I knew I couldn't do algebra, so I just took my F. So I have no abilities in this whatsoever, but I wanted to know it. 
because I thought it was important. Well, but there was one thing I did have ability in. I had ability in meditation. Right. I mean, meditative skills can be used to transcend conditions, but they can also be used to improve conditions. Right. Uh, one condition meaning, can you do math problems? Mm-hmm. So I used my meditation skills to overcome my um, natural lack of ability and my belief system about that. So anyway, the upshot of all of that was that I lived at a center in the United States. I was practicing meditation, and people started to come who wanted instruction in meditation. And I started to instruct them. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that I was initially instructing in the Zen way. Mm -hmm. I'd been trained in Vajrayana, which is sort of the last development in India, I was teaching Zen because it's what I was familiar with through Japanese culture, and it was popular, and also, well, it represented Mahayana Buddhism, so, okay, it's sort of like an earlier period of Buddhism, but it's, it's a, again, an example of a hybrid, right? It's a mating of Mahayana spirituality from India with the Confucian work ethic and the Taoist philosophy of oneness. Mm -hmm. Put those all together, and you've got Zen. (laughs) Right. And Confucian ritualism, and that kind of thing. So, anyway, I I was sort of teaching within that context, but I was at the center where I was at, it still exists. It uh, is called the International Buddhist Meditation Center in Los Angeles, California, and true to its name, they had representatives of all three vehicles there. Mm. And I noticed that the People that were teaching mindfulness seemed to be getting results better. Interesting. And faster, and they were attracting more people, and they didn't have a lot of the problems associated with Zen and Vajrayana. To do Vajrayana, you have to sort of visualize the deities of, of another culture, okay? And Jung said that that could be very could be very harsh on a person, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I don't exactly agree with Jung, but not everyone wants to participate in the archetypes of another world. Right. To do Zen, as I was teaching it at that time, we were chanting in Japanese, eating with chopsticks, you know, whacking people with sticks. It's a very different cultural experience. But the mindfulness people were able to extract what they were teaching from the cultural matrix and make it very American and very approachable. Mm -hmm. And that made sense to me in terms of pragmatism. The other thing is that I noticed that the mindfulness was very systematic. It was, in fact, algorithmic. And as a budding math geek, that appealed to me. What do you like, mean by oh, algorithmic? I mean that it can be taught as an algorithm. Do this, do this, this, do this. Now, this, this, or this will happen. If right. this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. If this other thing happens, keep doing what you've been doing until this other thing happens. In other words, you can loop and branch and optimize people's experience mm. with it. So I was teaching, and I thought, I think... I want to learn more about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So I started to go to mindfulness retreats in the classical traditions of Asia. 
specifically the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, which you're familiar with, right. which involves noting mm-hmm. as the mindfulness technique, and the Ubakin tradition right. through Mr. Goenka, which involves body sweeping primarily as its technique. So I started to move more towards a mindfulness approach because I like the way of working. Specifically, I like the Mahasi way of working with the noting, although the sweeping is also a very powerful technology. Mm-hmm. So in any event, I started to experiment teaching mindfulness as opposed to Vajrayana or Zen, which were my actual lineages. And it worked very well. It worked well in the sense of I could appeal to more people because we didn't have the cultural baggage. And I found that I could extract it from even the loaded spiritual vocabulary of the Buddhist religion, mm-hmm. I could reformulate it in a modern secular vocabulary without losing any of the spiritual potential. Mm. Could you give me an Just example? By, yeah. The way I now formulate it, if I were to sort of fast forward to what I do now, I say that mindfulness is a threefold attentional skill set. The three components that we will train with time, like we could train your body, the various dimensions of your body, strength, definition, flexibility, we can train various dimensions of your attentional process. Mm-hmm. And the three components that we are going to train are concentration power, which we'll define as the ability to focus on what is deemed relevant. Mm-hmm. Sensory clarity, which you can think of as the ability to keep the components of your sensory experience separate in awareness. For example, when you have an emotion, instead of an emotion, you can break it down into a visual component, mental images, an auditory component, internal talk, and a somatic component, emotional feel. Keeping track of those components is sensory clarity. And then a third skill set is called equanimity, which is the ability to allow sensory experience to well up and subside without suppressing it as it wells up and without inappropriately latching on as it subsides. So now I've defined a threefold attentional skill set. Mm. Now we will apply this both to your subjective sensory experience and your objective sensory experience, but when your concentration, your sensory clarity, and your equanimity reach a certain critical mass, there is a kind of a quantum leap that occurs, and ordinary experience becomes utterly extraordinary. And that utterly extraordinary is around the world is referred to as a spiritual experience. But another way that we can describe it, if we don't like the word spiritual, is we can just say it's what happens to ordinary sensory experience when those ordinary experiences are greeted with extraordinary base level of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Gotcha. So this is completely secular language. Sure, sure. But... What that extraordinariness is, is that basically it all breaks up into vibrating energy, and then that energy subsides into a timeless, spaceless, absolute consciousness called nirvana, 
but I don't have to use the word nirvana. I can just say that I'll connect the dots for you. The more that you have concentration, clarity, and equanimity, the less your happiness will be dependent on conditions. Mm-hmm. Or put alternatively, the more you will be happy independent of conditions. And I can connect the dots between those attentional skill components and your ability to experience physical discomfort without suffering, A, your ability to experience emotional discomfort (laughs) without suffering, (laughs) B, your ability to experience physical pleasure with enhanced fulfillment, C, (laughs) your ability to experience emotional pleasure with enhanced fulfillment, D, and your ability to understand who you are, A, B, C, D, E, okay, (laughs) and your ability to make the behavior changes you need to make in your life, I can relate all of these to that attentional skill set directly. So this gives a fully secular languaging of the path for both radically improving oneself and radically transcending oneself. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. Do you dig Buddhist Geeks? Well, you at least made it through one episode. If you appreciate what we're doing, if you want to support what we're up to and also get access to some bonus content and early access to the podcast, you might want to consider becoming a Buddhist Geeks patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Buddhist Geeks, or just go to BuddhistGeeks.org and click become a patron. Patrons get early access to the podcast and can also get bonus content, preparation calls with guests before we have them on the show where we talk about what we're going to talk about, and other kinds of bonus material, content related to the show, that we only prepare and offer to patrons. So please support Dharma in the age of the network. Please support Buddhist Geeks. You did make it all the way through a whole episode, so there might be something there.